Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm here with Katarina Kern and Alec Bianco for our last of the Ovid recordings, where we answer some of your questions. How are y'all doing today? Good. How are you? I am well. We've all just returned from a, a fun, our, our regional conference. So if you weren't there, be on the lookout for the, the audio that should be available in the next month or so on, on our site. Some really good talks from Ken Myers and Alec and Katarina and others. So, well, it's question and answer time. So I will start with one from Sarah Woodwick, uh, who asks, I've been wondering why people in the stories we've read turn into different plants. Could this be in an effort to explain why so many different plants exist? Mm, great question. I've been wondering that same question. So I don't have a solid answer or a concise or a definitive answer for that. It does seem to be that these, like all myths, are explaining natural phenomenon. So it makes sense that whatever it is that people are seeing is what they're seeking to explain. And I think it's interesting that there's this connection between singing and the plants. Um, so it makes it, it would seem to be quite possible in, in my mind that it is trying to explain why there's such diversity of plants. I don't know, Alec, what do you think? I think that that is probably part of it because the natural world is vast and full of variety. But this is actually my first my first thought to answer that question. And I think it's the exact same reason that we have the story of Santa Claus, which might sound a little unrelated, but I think that... <clears throat> I don't know why Santa Claus is, exists either as a story. I don't know where I haven't read the history of Santa Claus in, insofar as its connection with the explanation of presence under Christmas trees. But, and that's not something we need to talk about today, but I do <laughs> think that, that it's a similar kind of explanation. There is the quote unquote real explanation, which is that mom and dad buys the presents and puts it under the Christmas tree. And then there is the more real explanation, which is that Santa Claus himself, mm -hmm. as a monolithic mythological person, delivers the presents. I'm giving this explanation in case you've never heard of Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a similar kind of thing that myths and fairy tales and fables and stories are bound up with our natural world because we are inherently of two substances we're made of earthly matter and we're made of divine ethereal matter so there's two kinds of knowledge two kinds of real in our world we have the real the physical world which is real and the spiritual world which is real and so both explanations are there so part part of what myth Myth, mythologizing, creating myths, part of that activity is to bring in that heavenly stuff, substance, mm -hmm. into our explanations. Well, now I have to put a warning at the beginning of this episode for anybody whose kids believe in Santa Claus, but that's fine. I think, Alec, too, what you said made me think about how 
it's interesting that the things that they're changing into are often the most beautiful things, which is hearkening back to this idea that if we're trying to find the most real and we're trying to explain or not even explain, but just come into a deeper relationship with our spiritual self, by which I mean the world of spirit, then it makes sense then that so many of these characters are turning into the most beautiful things that they Mm. can find. Which relates back to that idea that I said, where it's interesting that Orpheus is the singer and that there's connection. Of, of course, Ovis is writing poetry. So there's this connection with music and beauty in the natural world as if they're all creating each other. That's interesting that, that because the things that inspire awe might inspire a, a fantastic story for why they exist, right? Uh, if it's if mm-hmm. the beautiful things you both received a, a more classical education than I did growing up. Let's put it that way. Um, you're, 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 my parents didn't even know what it was. So um, I'm a little older than you guys, whatever. Um, but Well, you cannot know what it is and still do it. That's true. But they didn't do that either. Um, okay. I came up through the public, <laughs> I came up through the public school system. Um, and so my, what I was either uh, and uh, explicitly or, or implicitly taught, about a lot of the the Greek myths, the Roman, you know, the the, the Roman myths uh, like these, was this idea that well, they were just you know they didn't know how else to explain natural things around them. They didn't like understand science, and so they were just they just made up stories about this and that, which mm. is obviously somewhat erroneous, if not completely erroneous. Right? The the they weren't um, ignorant of you know the stars, like what was going on with stars moving and math and science clearly. Um, but, but that was what I was giving growing up. So like my, that my understanding as a kid was like, yeah, they just made up these stories to explain natural phenomena that they didn't have science to explain yet. And so now I'm looking now with better hindsight, I, it's, I don't know where to draw that line sometimes. Like was this myth to explain the, the the existence of the halcyon bird or was it or that that bird's existence just give uh was it the muse to a story about this kind of this kind of love and this kind of um to to embody something uh an idea that's maybe eternal and put it into something physical to tell the story to to, to communicate the idea so where that line is i think is um an interesting one to contemplate, but I'm not, I'm not sure, you know. I think a lot of this comes down to a person's semiotic, their, their sense of symbols and, and references, the things that symbols reference. So you can have this eternal heavenly truth that takes on multiple forms in our reality. So let's say Mother Earth losing her child, and that that is winter. It's Mother Earth mourning for the loss of the future, which the child, uh, the, the girl, the princess in these myths symbolizes the future of the kingdom. So you've got nature herself mourning for the future, and that's winter time. So you've got these. Well, what what I think it is is that you've got in heaven in the heavenly realm, you have these truths, and then they manifest themselves in multiple ways in our reality, and then these icons. I'm using that word to describe the symbol that's representing the heavenly reality and participating in it. These icons then come into relationship with each other. So we can be an icon of Christ, and then we can find other things in this realm that are also icons of Christ. And now these multiple icons take on 
analogical relationships with each other. So I think that happens a lot in these myths where we see this bird or this character that's referencing this heavenly reality. And then we might say, well, which one came first? But so many times we've got these multiple iterations of these heavenly realities that now become, now come into relationship with each other. I think that's really what we're experiencing with myth is that the bird or the character, let's say the example of mother earth, mother earth is an icon. And so too is earth itself an icon in, at winter time. And they become references, references of each other as the two represent, represent this higher reality, this more eternal truth, which is that nature cycles or that there's a cyclical experience of, of death and resurrection. Like that is the ultimate truth. And we see these iterations of it throughout our own material world. And so stories start to reference each other in that analogical way. But I don't know if anything I just said made sense. Symbolically, it made sense. Oh. <laughs> Alec looks very pensive. And so I'm wondering if, if I explained that very poorly, which is highly likely. No, I'm I'm just trying to understand my own confusion. <laughs> um, I'm not, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, what you said makes sense, but then I'm bringing it back to the question, and I don't know how to apply what you said to her question. So, what do you mean? Oh, to the question that? of the plants, right? Brandon, can you read the question again? Because I'm trying to remember sure, yeah. exactly how she worded it. I've been wondering why people in the stories we've read turn into different plants. Could this be an effort to explain why so many different plants exist? Yeah, so Brandon was saying that it's hard to find that line between does the story exist because it explains a phenomenon that's observed or is the observed phenomenon simply inspiring this story? So what is the relationship between the story and the phenomenon? And my my or my proposition is that the story and the phenomenon are both analogically related because they are both, let's say, sibling symbols to the one ultimate truth. Rather than so, it's not two points; it's not a line of two points. Like this character represents Mother Earth. That would be a straight line. Dot dot. It's a triangle. You've got a heavenly reality at the top. So that would be death and resurrection and then you've got the two points at the bottom mother earth and and winter so it's not if you're looking at it as two points you could say well which one is prior which one comes first in our own human experience but if we think about it as the triangle that question is resolved because the prior is the eternal so am i i I'm, i don't know what story you're referencing so it might be more helpful for me if you reference one of the stories that we read so like Mira, for example. Oh, sorry, was that triangle. was Persephone. Yeah. Um, go, sorry, I interrupted. What did you say? So take, I don't know, Mira turning into the mer tree. How, how does the triangle, where are you seeing the triangle there that you're describing? So you've got Mira and then you've got the mer tree. So the mer tree would be the phenomena that they're experiencing. They're looking at and then they're saying, okay, let's have this myth, this mythical character, Mira, to explain the mer tree. So then the question is, well, does the myth come first? Um, are we trying to explain the Mertry or is it is it just an inspiration that's bringing about the character of Mira? But if instead we have a heavenly reality that those two points are both mirroring, then you've got the full triangle and the prior is actually the eternal truth. Which I think we determined in that story was about propriety 
and the, and the relationship of the offspring to the progenitor that ultimately how do we relate to that which has caused us so it's this question of cause and effect in our relationships to our causes that's the eternal truth whatever the answer is to that question that that myth is exploring which we didn't necessarily pinpoint the answer the answer to that question would be that first top of the triangle that eternal truth and then the myth and the expression of it so we have the human expression of this eternal truth which is seen through the physical man- manifestation in the world and then we have the physical manifestation in the world and the question of which came first i think is somewhat irrelevant because if we put it in the re- relationship of the whole triangle again the eternal is the is the prior okay you guys, if you guys no. are looking this confused, then there's no way our listeners are getting any value out of this. I, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I think I'm trying to catch up to you, but I think, uh, I think, no, I think it's a relevant answer, right? Because my, like I was saying, my experience was that they saw something, they did not explain it. So they wrote these stories to explain something they couldn't explain because they did, they, mm-hmm. they were ancient dumb people, right? Didn't know science. That, that was the, that's what I got in my education, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, and the, the flip, the, the complete opposite would be, no, it was an inspiration. They see something and it's inspiration for a story about something greater. And your point is that it's either or could be having or both, but really it's, it's about what they're pointing us to more than anything else. So Yeah, was- and you could have far more than two points on the line. You can have... 10 different icons in our world of this eternal truth and one might be the myth and one might be the plant and you know one might be a human and there's all these different ways that this eternal truth might manifest itself in our reality but it's always a triangle and not a straight line but humans when we're looking at symbols and, and myth making we always view it as a straight line because we experience it as a straight line because we think of ourselves as creating these things but we're not we're echoing them yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things I like about this question. Uh, one, she's getting at something. We don't know why the Murtry exists. The story of Kinaras and Mira is the answer for why the Murtry exists. Mm-hmm. Quite literally. And I mean that. Otherwise, from a human, like from a modern materialistic perspective, there's no reason for the Murtry to exist. Any more than the oak tree any more than an elm tree there's no explanation for variety outside of something that exists within without empirical data Mm -hmm. without a completely materialistic view because it cannot answer that question Mm -hmm. why is there something rather than nothing yeah it's just it's just random iteration of trees right we have so many kinds of trees just because that's over time that's what happens that's the best answer right that's Right, because it's Alex, go ahead. Because they're trying to answer questions that don't fall into the domain of science, right? From a, from a materialistic perspective, so you have to go into the divine, and you have to start asking questions that come from a more ethereal realm. So, from my perspective, I, th- I think she's right. I mean, I don't. And then, and the other point that I was going to say that she brings up too is it's only very recently that we started asking questions like, well, why did they write myths? That's not a question that the ancients ever asked themselves or the medievals or until very recently, we never looked back and said, well, why did they, why did they make up stories? 
right? Even that set, even that set of questions comes from our materialistic right fr- framework, right? Yeah, yeah. We we and I think that's because we don't know how to make up stories anymore, or rather, participate in story making. Yeah, mm-hmm. we don't we don't have myths for any expert because we don't care. We don't ask ourselves why a certain tree exists because we're not outside. We're staring at our phones. <laughs> I mean, that's that's part of part of the issue. So again, why I really like this question. Well, a certain tree exists for me to use it. Like it's very right. It's very much a. I don't even use those anymore because I have uh, gas heating. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Alec, I'm trying to determine whether I agree with what you said, and I I don't understand what you said well enough to know if I do. So I, I'd love to ask some questions to like get more clarity around where you said that the story is true or the story does explain why the Murtry exists. And you you said, I mean that, you didn't say literally, but you said like, I mean that very, very truly or something. Like this is, did you say literally? <laughs> Okay. Okay. Great. So I want to understand what you mean by that, because as you were, as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, I totally agree that there has to be this divine explanation for variety. And it seems then from my Christian perspective, I could easily say, well, God created variety out of love. It's his extension of love. He takes joy in these things and he creates them and then he sees his imagination creates more things. And then he takes so much joy that he creates them. He manifests them. There's this sort of play between his mind and the material realm. That's that, that game of play is his love, his joy. They're just that sort of overflow, like a bubbling stream of, of creativity. Um, why, why does it have to be this particular story by Ovid that explains the Murtry? Why couldn't it be a different story? Well, I never said it couldn't be a different story. Um, oh, because, okay. you, because you just wrote a myth now. Yeah. I mean, but, you have no idea what happens in the mind of God. You created a myth to understand what he did in the act of creation. And you mm-hmm. said that now for the first time probably ever that any human has ever heard was that specific myth that you just came up with. Um, Ovid is retelling a story of a different story. I, I think they're both equally true. Okay, so it's not just that Ovid's ex- explanation for the Murtry is true. It's that all the myths that explain Murtry are true. Yes and no. So uh, it's it's hard because we're talking so abstractly. But yeah. stories, there are stories. It's It's sort of like asking a question, what makes a great book a great book? Or what makes a good story a good story? The answer is self-evident. It's time-tested. It resonates with people. Uh, that's what makes those stories great. And it's what makes certain myths true and others not. Um, you, we as individuals in a podcast can't possibly determine whether a myth is true or not. Um, humans, oh, all humans over time determine whether a myth is true or not. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a part of the story. And it's true, I think, in our, like, if we think about our own families and the myths and legends that come about through our family histories, which we all have them, not every single true is exact, or every single story is exactly empirically true. There's a kind of mythos that occurs over time, especially as it gets passed down. But it's, well, as a friend of mine, 
uh, likes to say, don't let facts get in the way of a good story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just something we do as humans. So I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer to your, uh, to your question, but it seems to me it's true because, because it is, it's in Ovid. Mm -hmm. it, it would, it would another way yeah. to be to say that the, the Ovid's story myths of the Mercury, it res like you said, you think you use the word resonate. It resonates with the nature of, of the Mercury, right? Like it, it, it the story fits right and it wouldn't fit necessarily with something else um or another story about the mercury wouldn't fit with 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 the perceived reality of the tree right um yeah if i said an alien from another planet created a seed and then shot it in a spaceship to earth then it landed in wherever it did and that turned into the mercury that's a less than satisfying myth to come up <laughs> with for the explanation Right, because you can have false myths. Not every myth is a true myth, but I like what you said that it's it's tested by time. It's generations upon generations of humans that determine, yes, this myth has been useful to us. Like mm -hmm. this is a story that we deem worthy to tell our children. This does explain reality because I've lived in this myth for my whole life. And I can see that this is a myth worth living in. And then you continuously pass it on. That makes yeah. sense. And it strikes me while you were talking too that you can have two myths that appear to be very different stories but are the same story. It's just different manifestations of the same story. Yeah. And to your point, Katarina, it 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 it's time tested and works because it points to that higher truth that it's mm -hmm. on the line of pointing to. Mm -hmm. And so therefore it works when I see the Murtry, I'm reminded of that higher it, it resonates. All those things resonate, right? uh they're 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 in harmony with that higher truth but some others some other culture story about the mercury some what are eastern culture african culture may have a different story about the mercury that also resonates right with that with that truth and with the mercury itself yeah okay uh one question down <laughs> I will give a slight uh, warning to parents on this next question, uh, but you're, you know, if you've been following along, you probably should, you probably already know that since we're talking about Ovid. Sarah also says, kudos to you for all for having a good discussion about Sinras and Mira. I really wasn't sure how that episode was going to go after I read it. <laughs> um, us either. Uh, this may not be a question you can answer because it goes to Ovid's motives, but why include lines such as the pederasty and Orpheus and the story of incest with Sinras and Mira. What purpose do they serve? I don't, I was looking, I don't think we actually read the lines that indicate the pederasty with, with Orpheus. Um, it's after he loses Eurydice and it says he doesn't, he's not with women, any, any, any other women. He mentioned something about the, the boys. Um, but I don't think we actually read that in the section we read. But, but anyway, to the broader question, these things that we find kind of, you know, we're morally reprehensible from our from our vantage point. Why? Why, Ovid? Why? No. I think questions like that or lines like that, sections like that are essential to the text. I think Ovid is questioning what is nature? What are we allowed to do according to our nature? And so there are times when he walks right up to the line and even mm -hmm. has characters mm -hmm. cross over it because that's the way you explore. Mm -hmm. is finding the boundaries. And I think he's finding the boundaries of human nature. 
What do you yeah. think, Alec? I think you, you have to... I, I don't think there's a quick, easy answer to her question. I think we need to just talk about the whole story again <laughs> and then think about the specific parts. Um, because I think you're right. I, Abed included them. So let's figure out why why yeah. he included them um, as a part of the story. Um, I, I think that it's, it's similar to the scripture. You read the Old Testament and there is a lot of evil and a lot of sadness and corruption. And many of even our favorite heroes. <laughs> and that's th those elements are important for the story. Generally speaking, they're important because they teach us that one, they reflect our reality, which is one that is corrupted and one that is mired by bentness. So that's one of the reasons that they're there. Uh, two, I think what you said, Katarina, is really good. Um, that Ovid is, is talking about change. And when you're talking about the, the gods or God, he is, and they are, to some degree, divinity is characterized by its immutability. And so it is in like the ancient sort of Greek cosmology, it's this idea of being versus becoming that becoming is what mortals are constantly changing constantly growing but true being is the good the true it is being it does not change it is immutable um it can't it cannot participate in uh the the evil things that we see in these stories uh, otherwise it would cease to be the good so uh, it's, it's a really interesting question that we don't have time for today with respect to Ovid and what he's trying to accomplish with these stories. Uh, because he does, more than some of the other myths we've seen, present the gods even as mutable creatures, which is odd to me uh, yeah. and want to figure that out. It's one of the reasons Socrates rejects the poets in the Republic because they present the gods as changing. So anyways, that's that's definitely a part of it. Um, that the these these evil acts are a representation of mutability, of change. Yeah, I think I think to some extent these are things that exist, right? He's not like willing them into existence in these stories. And so he's addressing um just the reality also of the world he's in. Um, and at least in one of them, at least for me, it he seems to be identifying it as, as wrong with the sinners in, in Mira, uh, the, the incest there. Um, we, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about exactly why it's wrong for him, right? Why it's wrong for Ovid. Um, but he does seem to identify it as something that's not good. Um, the the pederasty in Orpheus is such is such a short like reference to it that it's kind of hard it's it's harder to really I th I think it would be it would be hard for me to pinpoint what Ovid's saying or doing there uh, without a lot more conversation 
I agree, Alec, without really looking at that, at the whole story and probably having to look at more than what we read of Orpheus because he, you know, there was, there was a good bit that he's involved with between uh, the Eurydice, losing Eurydice and then his death that we, that we read. So. I think to that, this, I, I, I agree with Alec that we'd have to look at the story really carefully, but we don't really have time for that. I think that some framework that might be helpful is the symbolic application of, of that rejection of woman that for him, again, he's a storyteller. So he's a creative, his, his work is, is that of making and putting out into the world. So for him to reject women and to now turn towards men is a rejection of that creative force. So symbolically, he's now turning mm. away from, from his work of, of creativity and his, his calling in that. So I, I think it's more, I, I, again, we'd have to look at the story really carefully. We just don't have time for that, but I would encourage the readers to look at that symbolically and to see like, what, what is, does it mean for the man to no longer be um, moving outward in a creative way, but to be kind of squelching his own creative abilities. I'm trying to say this in a way that's not like overtly sexual. <laughs> Yes. I think I achieved it. We're good. Right up until you said overtly sexual. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Yes. That's as comfortable. That's as far as I want to go comfortably on the air. So um, we'll move on. Um, this one was actually, this was kind of interesting for, to me. Um, why is it wrong for Alcyon to offer sacrifices for her husband who is dead, unknown to her? Why does it offend Juno? So I don't know that we categorize it categorize categ oh my gosh categorize it as wrong on the air but it does seem to upset Juno like annoy Juno so why Alec yeah. can you read that section because I don't remember interpreting it that way could you read that for us because I, I see yeah. you with the book is that that was book eleven right book eleven yeah yeah um, um uh, it's about line six fifteen six twenty Meanwhile, Al Alcione, in ignorance of such catastrophe, counts down the nights. She quickly weaves the clothes that he will wear and those that she will wear when he returns, telling herself in vain that he'll come back. To all the gods, she piously brings incense, but most of all, she honors Juno's temple, haunting its altars for a man now gone. She prays her husband will return in safety and that she will prefer no other woman. Only this final prayer could be fulfilled. And yet the goddess can no longer stand such pleading for the dead. To keep her altar untouched by grief-polluted hands, she says, Iris, my faithful messenger, go quickly to sleep's hypnotic home. Tell him to send Achione a vision of dead Caix, a dream to tell the truth of his demise. Yeah, so that's interesting. I'm actually really glad this question popped up then because... I didn't read that as closely as this reader did. Um, I originally read it as I, I focused on that one part where it says, and yet the goddess can no longer stand such pleading for the dead, which to me sounds almost like annoyance or yeah, irritation at this constant pleading. But is that next line, to keep her altar untouched by grief-polluted hands. So 
I don't know. The question was, why is it wrong? And I don't know if the text says that it's wrong. But Juno certainly doesn't prefer it. And so it is a good question. Why why doesn't she? My first thought is, well, look at Alcione's prayer. What is she praying? And she's praying for things that only can occur if he's alive, right? But he's not. And so perhaps that's what's what Juno wants to cease. She wants these prayers to end because they're not possible to fulfill. Alec, um, do you mind looking at the text again? I don't have it again in front of me here. Does it say that she prays equally to all the gods and Juno's the one who's most upset or she prays particularly to Juno and then Juno gets upset? It's the latter. Right. She's pious she to prays all particularly the gods, to okay. but particularly most to Juno. Juno. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think, I, I mean, I don't know the reason why Juno is upset about this, but I think Ovid is certainly telling us that there's a distinction between their realms. That Juno is not her, this is not her realm, the realm of the dead. She does not have power here. And so all she can do is tell her like, hey, he's gone. So I think it might be more about who has power where. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't know why. I mean, I could guess that it has something to do with her being the queen of wives, or sorry, the goddess of wives and motherhood. She watches over the giving of life. Um, she's particularly prayed to when you're having a child. So it could be that she, yeah, but her domain is bringing things into the world and she's not, she doesn't want to have to do with this, you know, the death of the husband, which is kind of the antithesis of her realm. But that's totally, I'm hundred percent guessing on that. I think what I, what I do think is in the text is that Ovid is declaring that this is not Juno's realm, making a statement about Juno in that. Yeah, my, mine refers says, but she, the goddess of the nuptial bed, tired with her vain devotions for the dead, resolved the tainted hand should be repelled, which incense offered and her altar held. So I think you're right. I think I think it's the wrong things were being offered because she's offering nuptial prayers and incense on the altar that that can't be like obviously can't be answered, and so she's. She's essentially she's she's kind of taking up the time at the altar that that has nothing to, for someone who has nothing she has nothing to do with anymore. Well, in the I, realm of the dead, I think exactly, but that's really important. So you you are right, but that it's not her purview, but from Alcione's perspective, it is because in her from her perspective, her husband's still alive. So Juno is the goddess to whom she should be speaking. And that's, I think, the the problem there is that Juno can't stand the fact that these prayers are coming to her and Alcione doesn't know that what has happened. They're in vain, yeah. But she's not angry with Alcione. This response is not, she's not like, oh, you shouldn't be coming to my temple. I'm going to now respond in anger. This isn't Juno angry. No, I think it's Juno sending her a message that she'll accept to say you're praying in vain if you're going to pray for him it needs to be to someone else <laughs> but uh, but these prayers to me about your about your nuptial bed are in vain okay we have a question from michael shepherd says i've heard that orpheus and eurydice myth was very popular and significant in the early church in book 10 line 55 
starts the illustration of how Orpheus lost Eurydice the second time. My translation reads, he was desperate to see her. I found this fitting since desperate means to lose hope. Do you think that Orpheus in this story is a kind of imperfect type of Christ? Would you say that Christ did what Orpheus, a half-god, failed to do when he conquered Hades and led, led a captivity captive? That's a fun question. Um, probably. I know, I know nothing about the early church's interpretation of this story, so can't speak to that part at all. Yeah, I don't know that part, but just thinking about it typologically, um, yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly something that could be found there in especially yeah i mean i i think i can see why it it's so immediate to the mind because the story repeatedly talks about how incredulous it is that orpheus is walking in the realm of the dead alive mm. um so that of course of course would resonate with the early christians because that is what christ did and so i think the way he formulated it is sort of half accomplishing what christ did is absolutely true and it also makes what christ did even more glorious yeah i agree with that i've I've heard that reading that it's sort of a type of christ that christ was able to do what orpheus was not capable of doing um kind of similar to the aeneas story as well there's a lot of characters in the greco-roman myths that almost attain a proper resurrection and christ is able to do what they're not I think that I think there's something there. I'm trying to think through the aspect of him turning around and looking mm -hmm. and how that could be read within a Christological framework. And I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's well worth meditating on. Yeah, the thing that strikes me right at the top the right at the top is there are a lot of clear similarities, right? Going down into Hades to rescue the dead. Um what strikes me is that the distinctions between the two, the differences between the two might and this is just thinking out loud might line up with the 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 divinity part of christ the the, the divine uh side of christ so orpheus needs permission right and he has to convince the gods down below these are all things because he has to because he's a man and it's their realm right but the divinity of christ supersedes those things and so doesn't have to ask permission when he's down there to take you know he just takes because he conquers in a way that's different. Um, but that's just off the top of my head. But, you know, it might be interesting to see if if the parts that are similar line up with with or sort of I'm sorry, the parts that are distinct. Um, if the difference is Orpheus was only a man, and and Christ's divinity is what is really where the dividing line is between the two. But that's just a thought I'm looking at. I'd have to go back and read it again. That question in my mind. Yeah, I think that's also a. It's something you have to be cautious with if, if you read it in that light, because you there's no way to separate Christ's humanity and divinity. So you don't really know what happened through his humanity and through his divinity, I think. I mean, it could be it could be a dangerous game to play. But I, I see I see your yeah. point, and that's really interesting that sure. his divinity is what allows him to transcend. But so does his humanity, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that'd be fun to it'd be fun to think think through the whole thing in that paradigm of, of Christ being both fully mm -hmm. God, fully God and fully man. Be afraid. Yeah. Um, okay, there's a question for me that I can answer quickly. Brandon, other than Sinros and Mira, why did you choose these stories? That's because I admitted on that one that I didn't know what that story was about. It's simple. I have uh the old Western culture reader for these for these stories. 
I was trying to choose some that were a good length to do one, uh, an episode on a piece. And then I picked some that I kind of knew about, like the Orpheus and Eurydice. I thought that the introduction of creation would be a good one, a good place to start to at least get us rolling with Ovid. And then, as you pointed out, with Sinras and Mira, I just picked something that was looked like it was the right length and then didn't know what I was getting myself into. So there you have it. And Alec and Katarina just came along for the ride like good co-hosts. So. Um, Sometimes that's the most fun way to do it. Just let the yeah. fates decide. That's right. Letting the fates decide. <laughs> okay. I am going to jump into some things we had talked about. Uh, kind of toward the end of different episodes, we said, oh, it's another question I want to look into more da, 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 and see if we see if we where we come out. Um, so starting with the very first episode, we started talking about looking at these stories about uh, in, in light of whether it's things are changing within their nature or they're changing nature. Um, I think, Katarina, you're the one who really brought that one up. And obviously, we've only had a small sample of, of Ovid. But what are you feeling about that question now, now that we've kind of had a chance to poke around a few, few stories? I think I was primarily sticking with changing in the nature or changing the changing of natures. Or is it not that clean? I still feel like I need to read more types in order to feel confident in my answer to this. It seems to me that Ovid, because the things that they turn into is an expression of their spirit, or a natural consequence of their spirit. It's almost like just playing it out to, to where the physical world is manifesting the spiritual. It seems like he is then saying that the nature of things is more tied to their spirit than their material realm. Like we tend to think of nature as very tied to the material. Like humans have a nature and everyone with a human body has that human nature. It seems to me like he defines nature more akin to our spirit, hmm. but that's, I have to read more types. That's just a hypothesis at this point. Yeah, I think I lean that way with you. My only caveat, like you said, and again, we didn't read enough stories, I don't think, to know this, is, is and it came up in one of our episodes, maybe it was the, 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 the mirror one, whether it's her spirit or there's a, there, there, it's the decisions she makes that may or may not be, like, she could have chosen other otherwise, but did not. And that then... If that if that influences what they what they transform into in a way that's maybe different than then no the spirit she has is always going to lead this way if that if that makes sense but I don't know that but I would say that that is I I would say that that is a part of the spirit like the decisions that you make are reflecting the spirit so I I wouldn't think of those as two separate categories okay yeah I, like I said I think I'd have to read more stories too to find out like what kind of free will line I'm drawing for in Ovid stories. <laughs> There's that line can be placed yeah. in different places. So, Alec, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so Mira, she prays to the gods that she that she might neither die nor be alive because she doesn't want to be among the realm of the living nor among the dead because of her shame. So, whatever the change is, it's changing her in a way where she's not completely dying some aspect of her still remains but she's not completely alive still in a way that she's remembered as mira the person so i don't know what that means 
but that's interesting. <laughs> She's also still capable of birthing a baby. That's also very odd. It's not normal for trees, really. Have either of you read Virgil's version of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice? No, I haven't. Okay. Then that is not one we can discuss on this show. So, dear listeners, save that for another time. So, dear listeners who are curious, you're just going to have to read it yourself and make your own comparisons. Um, And if you need to know how to make comparisons, you can look at the Lost Souls of Writing. We did not get a chance to talk much about Adonis's actual transformation, Um, and so I wanted to give both of you a chance if you if you want to talk any more about. uh his, his transformation into the I'm never gonna say that flower's name right an enemy. Um we kind of skirted it toward the end there, but the type of flower and I think we discussed a little bit about it being a, a fairly fleeting flower. Um, that was the wind flower, right? Yeah, yeah, the one that kind of doesn't last very long, either naturally or in the elements. Yeah. Hmm. And in particular, I think he's typically associated with the red, the red variety of that flower. Mm-hmm. Was that a book ten? Yeah, I believe that it was. Yes, book ten. That's right. After oh man! Or, after Orpheus and Eurydice. So that's the story with Venus and how it's all sort of from her perspective. Which is really yeah, and we got the various races. You know, we got she tells the story of Hippomenes. Mm-hmm. So we we got, we got caught up in those other in the story along the way and didn't uh, have much chance to talk about his transformation. It, it was interesting because we thought you know it seemed to be more about the the transformation into the lions for the story within the story than it did about his than it did about his trans uh, transformation. But but for whatever reason, the idea of Venus and Adonis seems to be the one that sticks in our cultural imagination. Um. At least reference, you know, that that's I have more reference to that than the other two. It's interesting that you bring this one up now because it's echoing the same idea of what Alex said, where Mira, I think it was Mira, sometimes I get the names all confused, was between the living and the dead. So Mira. Okay. The, the murder anyway, tree. Um yeah. No. Um, yeah. 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 So there's this weird interplay of like what is actually happening in the story what what is what is intending to be communicated and i feel like that's the same thing that's happening here where adonis becomes the flower that like if we think of so many myths from the greco-roman world the characters who are loved by the gods become constellations because constellations they thought of as the permanent the eternal Mm, things and humans can humans can rise above our human realm and become immortal or something close to immortal by becoming a star right the constellations are the fixed stars they thought of them that way so it's like the sense of stability and like like alec was saying being versus becoming it's a movement towards being and the literal heavenly realms the divine so it's interesting that here he becomes a flower through the love of aphrodite it's her her tears mingle with his blood and that's what gives him this um eternal life force that allows him to become the flower so 
there's, it's, I, I would just want to explore that more deeply, co- contrasting this story and other stories where they become plants with stories where they become stars and see why in sometimes they're fixed in this material world and why at other times they're able to transcend. I mean, we do see that it's feats of virtue that allow them to become stars. So it's as though these characters are loved by the divine and so they get this sense of immortality, but yet they don't rise above humanness enough to transcend. Um, I don't know. I, I just need to do that. I need to do more comparisons and contrast a bunch of these to a bunch of star stories and just see what happens. Yeah, uh, it's it would be worth exploring that. And, and if, if Ovid makes a distinction in his stories between those two kinds of transformations, at least for this, I think this is interesting because I know you're making a distinction between stars as having a kind of immortality and earthly things not. But I think in this story that actually isn't the case. The no, I wasn't. For, I wasn't making that distinction. Then why Sorry. are you asking about the distinction comparison between stars and other th- kinds of transformations? The earthly realm is a lower realm. It's a kind of immortality, but in an earthly realm, the physical material world versus the transcendent heavenly realm and the fixed stars. Sorry, but I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just carry on. I don't know. In this story, it says, I think this is really interesting. So Venus finds his body. As she leapt down, she ripped her clothes and hair, pounding her chest with angry palms. She railed against the fates. You can't rule everything. Reminders of my grief will last forever. Adonis and repeating every year, there'll be a reenactment of your death in imitation of my grief. Your blood will turn into a flower. So she cares that this is remembered forever um, and says that it will be. And it's interesting. So there's this whatever reenact. I can't remember the name of the reenactment, but the Greeks do this reenactment of Adonis's death. But also he turns into a flower that blooms every year. So uh, there's this sort of cyclical nature to what his blood at, uh, spilled on the ground now is going to come back up out of the ground every year. Um, there's something really interesting to that, a, a kind of perhaps echoing Venus's wishes. Interesting. I, Katarina, you um, actually led me into another question that maybe we can talk about this a little more broadly that someone sent in. Um, and I don't remember if we said it this way, but she said, uh, you guys touched on it, but the transformation into plants is more disgraceful than transformation to animals, right? Does that tell us that Atalanta and Hippomenes are more pious because they become lions than Adonis who turns into an enemy? Uh, I'm not sure we put it that way or we would put it that way, but you mentioned the stars being a high place of honor because they're fixed. Um, we did. We, I do remember us talking about uh, the birds with Alcyon and and Syx being not for for the for the ancients not being the same as the beasts, right? They were kind of more in between the physical and spiritual, where they were almost seen kind of somewhere between beasts and spirits, right? I think is what you said, Katerina. Do you, do either of you know or have any thoughts on the 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 variations in honor depending on what type of thing someone's transformed into i don't know it's not clear from the stories we read in ovid that he makes a distinction between the kinds of transformations 
Um, but like Katarina was saying, maybe in the greater myth mythos, there is a distinction. Yeah, I agree with Alec. I'd have to read a lot more stories. Just from the few that we've read, it's not enough types to really know if he's viewing plants as the lower species and animals. My my guess is that he probably is, but I just, I'd have to see more types. Okay. All right. Well, we discovered off the air that Katarina is much better at research than I am. So. <laughs> it is my job. <laughs> it is your job. Um, so. One thing that came up when we were discussing Syx and Alcyon was that it felt a little different in some ways than the other stories. Uh, less plot driven. There were a couple other things we noticed. And Katarina, you had said you wanted to look into whether there was any scholarly thoughts on on whether it might have been written by someone other than Ovid. I found Zilch, so I'm going to turn it over to you and let you tell us what you found. Okay. Yeah, so it is a pretty general consensus that Ovid wrote all of Ovid's stories, but it is highly probable that he used different source material for different stories. I mean, kind of like Shakespeare, he's just appropriating other stories and adding his own little voice to it. Um, little, little voice. <laughs> uh, so yes, there's probably many different source materials. And so where we were seeing those gross differences by gross, I just mean the exaggerated differences from one story to the next. It's very highly likely that it's just that he was using different source material. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our questions that we had for ourselves and the questions we got from others. Um, I'm going to have a few housekeeping notes for uh, over to classics here in a second, but I just wanted to see if there's anything either of you wanted to mention that's coming up for either of you. Uh, I know, Alec, you're in the middle right now of St. Matthew's Passion, right? That, that began last week on our intensives. Tanner, do you have one coming up in the spring at all? I don't have intensives, but I do have a couple books that I can mention that are okay. coming out in the next couple of months. We've got a new book from Josh Gibbs called Love What Lasts. It's going to be really excellent. It's looking at the difference between just ordinary daily things and eternal things and how we can fill our life with high quality eternal things. Really excellent book. I enjoyed reading that one. We've got another book coming out on Arthuriana for kids. It's basically like the Tales of Wonder 1 and 2 that we have, except this time it's called Legends of the Round Table. It's personally curated stories. I took all the best, all the, all the really great great ones. Um, and then uh, we added questions for discussion and even things like symbolism and typology, kind of helping students start thinking in that manner. And um, that one is really exciting. It's over 300 pages. It's a real hefty text. And, and that which, one's coming out very which, soon, in the next which, few months. Which version of the tale do we, do we use for that one? So it's a blend. Mostly I used Howard Pyle. I think that his are just very, very imaginative and beautiful. But it's, it's a blend of a couple different different source texts. Nice. All right. So everyone should be watching and waiting for that. Also, ABC Latine or ABK Latine, supposed to rhyme. That one is now in stock. So you can order that and we'll get it to you within the normal time for any book. It's been on delayed lately because our printers were delayed, but now we're, we've got it and we're good to go. And so I, order that one too. And I know there's some of you out there who have heard about this other project because it's been going 
for a little while. We've been secretly talking about it here and there, but the, also the printer is the tyrant, correct? Yes. So the tyrant is going to be in as soon as the printers get those printed. And that one's going to be really exciting. That's another one from the Hicks where they were translating from um, Plutarch. But for Julius Caesar from Plutarch, of course, there isn't another life. We, we've lost over the course of human history the second life that he compared it to Julius Caesar. So the Hicks actually did something very clever and took Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And they're contrasting the life of Julius Caesar through Plutarch and Shakespeare. Excellent. Well, um, we can finally announce multiple books coming up for for uh, Overdue Classics. Uh, next up on the show, uh, Matt and Andrea will be returning, and we will be beginning uh, Boethius Constellation of Philosophy. That is looking like it'll be probably six episodes, one for each of the books, and then and then a Q&A. Um, after that, we will be doing... Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I'm excited about because I know almost nothing about it. And uh, probably that one will be another four to five, uh, maybe six episodes. Um, and following that will be, uh, we're going to start on Herodotus. So what we're going to do with Herodotus is um, do it kind of in chunks. We'll do a few sections this first time around. We'll cycle back to it maybe uh early next year and just kind of take him in some pieces. So we haven't that one, I'm not sure exactly how many weeks will go because we haven't uh, nailed down exactly how many stories, but we'll have that out soon. And then um, that should get us to kind of late July, early August. And at which point I will have a special guest come in that we will announce later to do uh, the Oresteia uh, cycle of plates um, uh, for the summertime. So uh, those are things that are coming up. Um, we will have the actual dates posted in our other announcement, our brand new space for the community, uh, not only for this podcast, but for all the, the Close Reads podcasts. Um, we are transitioning over to a platform called circle.so. Um, it's, uh, it operates similar to a message board, like you would see on, on a group, uh, on Facebook or something like that, but it's a little bit more of a message board setting. Um, but it's not, you don't have to be, you don't have to join Facebook or Twitter or any other, the other kind of public social media outlets. It's a, it's a, it's a closed space. It's free to join, um, but it's a closed Cersei space. So uh, we'll start that with our podcast. And then over time, we'll have more and more of the Cersei community available there in our circle.so space. Um, and unlike social media, which is designed for you to scroll, this is designed for you to slow down and have actual conversation in a community. So I will post those links in the bottom uh, of the of the show notes, um, but you can go there, join the conversation on, about this podcast, uh, about the other Cersei uh, podcast network shows like Dwell, The Plays the Thing, and Quiddity um, in, in the next few weeks. And so all of that information will be in the uh, show notes, and there's that's where you'll find the schedule for the upcoming books uh, with the weeks and everything listed. So pretty excited about that. Other than that, uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, uh, Alec and Katerina for, for uh, filling in on Ovid. This was a lot of fun. Look forward to having you guys back in the future. Thank you. This was great. Yeah, thanks. Always a pleasure. 
All right. Well, thank you for joining us on Overdue Classics for uh, pulling down the book and, and, and breaking it open with us and sharing a little time with us. We will see you next week for the beginning of Boethius's Constellation in Philosophy.